0: Please be seated. Good evening to you. John's Gospel, chapter 17 tonight, Sunday night, through the Bible, uh, Genesis 2, uh, Revelation, and uh, we pick it up in chapter 17 tonight. Guys, I think we're okay on those this evening. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In John chapter 17, we come to the longest recorded prayer uh, of Jesus in the Gospels and in the entire New Testament. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples a sermon, uh, been discipling them in a upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. And uh, and what is known as the Upper Room discourse, and as he's been teaching them and discipling them from chapters 13 through chapter 16, now he doesn't want to end that sermon, so to speak, without then praying, without praying for them in terms of the context of of uh, the the that um, these to. You know bring to the conclusion, bring to the application, bring to the throne uh, what prayer allows us to do uh, in terms of of content and things that we 've uh, heard, and these things might be uh, deeply absorbed by them the The tone and the atmosphere of the upper room and also of of this prayer established for us in that early half of the uh, cha- uh, verse one here father the hour has come and so it's dominated by the very uh, theme the very environment that produced the teaching and that is the uh, the troubled hearts that they had related to his soon departure following his ascension into heaven and then uh, uh, only coming to a conclusion at his uh, return for the church, uh, at the rapture of the church. And so uh, here it is, they're facing this separation, they're troubled by it, they're anxious by it. He's given them the instruction now, and uh, and and now he wants to pray for them, and to pray for us related to uh, that long period of time between his uh, ascension into heaven and then his return at the rapture of the church, a, a period of of time that is called church history, and, and it's running at about 2,000 years at this, uh, this point. In this chapter, we're given a beautiful, beautiful glimpse into uh, the, uh, what constitutes Jesus' intercession for us as Christians. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, and so he does. And sometimes we might wonder, what exactly is it that he is interceding uh, for us? What is he praying for us? I don't say that this prayer is exhaustive in that regard, but it certainly includes these things. Wonderful to know that he is praying these things for each and every one of us as uh, Christians. Of course, there are entire books that have been written, volumes all on their own, on just this chapter alone. Uh, One of the books that was uh, written was by uh, Warren Wearsby. Anything by Warren Wearsby is very, very valuable. But he gave it what I thought was a very unforgettable title and a a very instructive title when he entitled his book, Listen, Jesus is Praying. If I had only 30 minutes to get to know um, the heart, the mind, the soul, and the strength of an individual that I wanted to get to know as best I could in 30 minutes, um, I would sit down and I would pray for them and and pray with them. Listen to their heart in prayer, agree with them in prayer. I don't know that there's a quicker way to get to know a person uh, than in praying with them. Their hearts, uh, their thoughts, their desires, their priorities um, in life. It doesn't mean that I would like to sit and and pray with somebody to listen to their prayer with a critical attitude or a means of judging their prayer. Um, But prayer does cause the the deepest things in our life to be revealed not only to God, but then to others who are agreeing with us in prayer. I'll never forget... uh, uh, A pastor friend of mine years and years ago, um, he told the story, true story of him, and he went out. uh, He was uh, pastoring on the East Coast at the time, and uh, they went out street witnessing, and uh, as they left in order to leave this meeting point to go street witnessing downtown, they did. They broke off. They shared the gospel with a lot of people. They came back together to uh, meet and debrief and also to pray. So they all took hands, and they began to pray, and, and the prayer began to—sometimes you'll like be in a circle of prayer, and it'll kind of pong into different things, but sometimes when you're in that group, someone will pray, and then the person right next to them will pray, the person right next to them, them will pray, and everybody then is afraid to break that, <laughs> that circle that occurs there. And uh, But anyway, so it began to make its way around the circle, and there was one uh, gentleman that had joined them. That uh, was a new Christian, and he just stuttered and he stammered his whole way through the entire uh, prayer and After they broke off and headed off all their different directions my uh, my friend said to the lord boy that was um, uh, that was really difficult, you know that uh, prayer that that he lifted up you know, lifted up to you, and the challenge that it seemed to be to him and the Lord spoke to my friend 's heart and said He's the only one who prayed. And there's something where we can become professional prayers, where we aren't really engaged in the words that we're saying. They're just, it's just Christianese that just flies off of our uh, tongues, or off, the, 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 um, uh, off of, uh, the top of our minds, or off the ends of our tongues, and, and uh, it, it just happens. But because we've been around for a while, and we can do this kind of thing, uh, we can begin to misjudge uh, how pleasing it is to God. And the most important, important thing related to our our prayers is that we actually mean what it is that we're saying and that we're actually engaged in what it is that we're saying to Him. And I thought that was a very, uh, God has brought that to my remembrance can, uh, continually, not because I'm in danger of judging people's prayers, but just to remind me of how important those things are um, to the Lord. Of course, in the Bible, we, Jesus told the story about uh, the Pharisee and, um, and the tax collector who went into the temple to pray, and one of them prayed, God, I thank you that I you know, tithe of this, and I tithe of that, and I obey you, and I'm not like this tax collector over here. Tax collector just beat his breast, and he said, uh, Father, be mer- merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man, with the simplicity of that prayer, went out justified and the other did not. But there is something here about being able to, in prayer, uh, get to know a person, I think, very, very quickly. Again, their desires, their priorities in life. And we want to study this prayer of Jesus with the same desire to get to know him and what is really important to him when he looks at our lives uh, as Christians. He, Jesus encapsulates the entire uh, crisis that surrounds, he's going to die on the cross the following day, he encapsulates the crisis uh, that is behind this prayer that he, he offers for the disciples uh, with the words, the hour has come. That phrase has been used repeatedly by John all the way through his gospel the first time that we saw this his, uh, my hour is not yet come jesus spoke to his mother at cana when she wanted him to turn the water into wine and then repeatedly repeatedly through uh, the gospel according to john until we come finally uh, to this place where jesus uh, talks about now uh, his hour having uh, finally uh, come and so what is he referring to when he talks about my hour has, uh, has come? What's this hour that he's referring to? And the hour speaks here to, uh, for him to die upon the cross uh, in order to provide the forgiveness for our sins, to be buried and to rise again uh, on the third day according to the scriptures. And so that hour is now uh, to begin those three great events, greatest events in human history, Jesus' death, his burial, uh, and his resurrection. And Jesus uh, said as much in John chapter 13, verse 1, which begins this entire upper room discourse, uh, and, and we're told that before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father by means of death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. The first five verses of John chapter 17, the opening section uh, of this passage, Jesus prays for himself. Uh, Sometimes people feel in in maybe a sense of hyper-spirituality or, um, uh, uh, you know, a a real strong case of other-centeredness. Uh, that, it, you know, it's, it's not that spiritual to pray for ourselves. Jesus prayed for himself, uh, and, and we need to pray for ourselves. There shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be any uh, guilt related to that. So he prays for himself in the first five verses. Uh, he then prays for his disciples, the apostles who are immediately with him in verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays uh, for us in this room here tonight. All Christians from the age of the apostles all the way until the time that uh, the Lord returns. The single theme... Uh, Of this prayer of Jesus concerning Himself, as He prays to the Father, uh, was glory. He said, "Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may uh, glorify You." And so Jesus's desire now is to glorify the Father and glorify Him in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And speaking of the glory that God the Father would receive uh, throughout. Uh, human history but then throughout eternity uh, by people like you and I who've become Christians because of that death, burial, and resurrection and glorifying God the Father for loving us so much as to send His Son in order to provide that salvation uh, to us. And so, His desire to glorify the Father in His death, burial, and resurrection and then uh, his uh, uh, desire that the that the Father would glorify him in enabling him to do all of this. Glorify your Son, uh, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And so, again, uh, how do these unique? Uh, these events that are you uh, uniquely glorify uh, the Father and the Son? How does the death, burial, and resurrection uniquely glorify the Father and the Son like nothing else in human history? Uh, it is in providing uh, everlasting life to mankind. You remember King David in his Psalm 19, famous for his. Uh, speaking of the heavens declaring the glory of God, that all of the creation that is around us, all that we see in the telescope, all that we see in the microscope, all of it testifies to God's power. It testifies to his wisdom. But here Jesus speaks of a glory in in the history of all creation that is even greater than uh, the creation itself. And here you have Jesus. He ignores all of that creation that David uh, gloried in as the ultimate uh, expression of the glory of God and the ultimate expression of his glory uh, because the creation expresses the wisdom and the power of God, but it does not reveal to us the heart of God, the love of God, uh, the grace of God, the nature of God. And so the cross is a glorification of the Father that exceeds all other glorifications of God uh, as uh, as the the Creator, Uh, His heart for us, His desire to save us, and and to do so at such an expense to Himself and giving His Son. That was the far harder thing, the far more sacrificial thing uh, to do. God could create A new heavens and a new earth and a new universe every 15 minutes and it would require nothing of him to do that it would pull nothing out of him in order to do that it wouldn't diminish him in any way but he had only had one begotten son And only one, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is this sacrifice, that death, burial, and resurrection that uh, glorifies uh, God in a way that nothing else does as it reveals his heart for us as nothing else can. Jesus goes on to say in verse 3, and this is everlasting life or eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that word no is worth underlining in the passage if you do uh, that kind of thing. Number one, everlasting life is found solely in the Father and in the Son. They're the sole source of everlasting life because you have to have everlasting life in order to give or to impart everlasting life. You notice that our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins uh, here is not the pinnacle of our salvation. It's merely a means to an end. It's the means to the highest end and the highest end being to know God. And that word uh, knowledge there, or to know you, speaking of God, it's the Greek word gnosko. It speaks of a knowledge that comes by experience. And the forgiveness of sins is wonderful, but it doesn't stop there. The forgiveness of sins brought us into the greatest thing that was possible for us as human beings, and that is to know God personally. And Christianity is all about a personal relationship with God. You have other religions in the world and they're offended by the very idea that that kind of thing is possible. Uh, Islam is among them. But this is exactly what the Father and the Son intended. It's exactly what they have provided to us. Uh, Islam and the Quran borrows so heavily from the Old and the New Testament uh, on a level of plagiarism. I mean, if you wanted to look at it that way, it's a shame that it doesn't go all the way back to Genesis chapters 1, uh, 2, and 3 in its understanding of God and its understanding of man related to a relationship with God. When man was first created in Adam and Eve, we were created for uh, a relationship with God and the breaking of that relationship, uh, the very thing that we we were created for was the great catastrophe of the fall. The great catastrophe of the fall is not weeds or floods or earthquakes, the great catastrophe is that we were cut off from the very relationship that we were created for, the relationship with God. And so since each of us have been created for a relationship with God, we will never ever know inward fulfillment or satisfaction in our lives until we are engaged uh, in that knowing relationship uh, with uh, God. And so when the Father and the Son provided us with salvation uh, and everlasting life uh, uh, and a, of necessity, uh, it would pro- provide a return then to that relationship. It is what the entire book is uh, all about. And how does a relationship with God begin? So simply Uh, putting my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins uh, uh, and then repenting of my sins and then being born again by the Holy Spirit, committing now in the power of the Spirit to be his disciple and to follow him. And it's as simple as that because the Father sent Jesus, verse 3, uh, to save. Jesus declared in verse 4, I have glorified you, speaking to the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me uh, to do. So he declares that he'd finished the work that uh, the Father had uh, sent him in the world to do. It certainly included a couple of things that he had finished. All that the Father had called him to do uh, through his incarnation, through his life, uh, up to this point. Nothing was left undone by Jesus as a result of the cross. The cross did not interrupt the plan of God. It did not cause Jesus to fail to do one other thing that God intended him to do. All of it was uh, under the jurisdiction and the, and the working uh, of, of God. And, uh, and so we never look and say, Oh, I wonder what might have become of Jesus if he hadn't been crucified. No, nothing else was intended. And then second. Uh, It speaks of his commitment to the coming cross and his commitment being so complete as he uh, uh, speaks to the Father here uh, that he views it as already having been uh, accomplished. And Jesus speaks and of this death upon the cross, this work that he'd come to do, and that he he was about to do with a clear sense of accomplishment. And it was a great accomplishment, the accomplishment of the greatest thing in all of, all of time and all of eternity, the provision of our salvation. The word glorify that Jesus uses there in verse 4, it is... In in an alignment with a similar Hebrew word that simply fills the Old Testament. That means to weigh heavily upon, to be heavy, to be uh, weighty, uh, to be honored. So this word has its theological roots in the Old Testament. And it speaks of the weightiness, the meaning, the purpose, the satisfaction, the sense of substance that living to glorify God in this world brings to a life. There is no ultimate meaning and purpose uh, in life apart from living to glorify God. Now, that's what gives weightiness to our lives, gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And of course Jesus as he speaks here of glorifying the Father. He is in a category of one in terms of how uh, he does that and, and did that. Uh, how we glorify God is in entirely different ways, but it is the glorification of the Father in our lives that brings substance and satisfaction uh, to our uh, lives. In verse 5, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world uh, was. And so Jesus here in his prayer, always very sobering to me, this particular part of his prayer, he uh, communicated his longing uh, to return to his former glory. Not just the glory that he had with the Father before his incarnation, before he came into the world as the God-man, but the glory that he had with the Father before anything was ever created, and he longed to return to his former glory uh, there in uh, heaven. When he came into the world, he never laid aside his deity, but he did lay aside his glory. I have never, ever seen heaven, and I long for it. Imagine having been there. Imagine having come from there, the longing that you would have in this world then to return to the glory of heaven and for him to return to his unique glory within that uh, that environment. I think that sometimes we talk about Jesus and his being born into the world and his incarnation uh, somewhat casually can be just viewed as like some point of systematic theology, because Earth is all we 've ever known. Uh, it, it, there was uh, no humbling in, involved for us. We didn't come uh, leave heaven or leave the glory of heaven to come to earth. And so we can tend to think uh, of Jesus as sacrifice for our sins almost solely in terms of the cross, that that is the lone expression of the sacrifice that was involved in in our salvation. And yet, here Jesus reveals uh, that it began 33 and a half years earlier in his very incarnation, his very being born uh, into uh, the world. Paul captured it perfectly in the book of Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And then here it is. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And only talking about the sacrifice of Jesus' incarnation, Does Paul then go on to speak about the sacrifice involved in his crucifixion when he goes on to write, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus prayed for the Father to glorify him, to bring him back into his former glory, and of course it happened at his uh, ascension into heaven. And right now, Jesus en- enjoys all of that fullness uh, once again. And one day we're going to uh, join him there in that. In verse 6, as I mentioned now, the, the prayer shifts now from Jesus praying for himself to now praying for his disciples, the apostles who are, 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 and disciples who are uh, with him. There are two, two great themes that he focuses on in praying for them. And the first theme uh, has to do with their security. He prays that the Father would keep them, that the Father would keep us. And then the second theme is their sanctification, that the Father would keep them and us uh, set apart to God uh, in this world just in the same way that Jesus uh, lived. And I don't think Jesus, uh, again, only prays for us and for them, uh, it, what is recorded here, uh, but it certainly includes this, and, and these uh, have Jesus' immediate attention. He prays for them, and he said to the Father, I have manifested your name, and that is the nature of God, your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Speaking of the disciples, they are yours you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which I have, you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you uh, sent me. And so Jesus speaks to the Father about what they learned and what they uh, knew uh, Jesus had manifested the Father's name; it had manifested uh, the nature of God, the character of God, uh, to them throughout His uh, public ministry—three and a half years of public ministry with them—and as a result, they responded with obedience to uh, uh, to Jesus and to the Father. In verse six, uh, they had received the truth. Uh, of Jesus' revelation, what he declared that he was saying from the Father. They received that revelation of the Father to them in uh, verses uh, 7 and 8. He brings that out. They had believed in Jesus. They put their faith in him, uh, and they'd made a personal commitment to him. And Jesus speaks of all of these things as something that greatly blessed him and was a blessing Uh, to the Father. And then out of that great love that he has, obvious love for the disciples, uh, and his heart of compassion for them, uh, he now prays for them. In this prayer, in verses 9 through 16, he prays for their security, that they would be kept, as I mentioned, And it's interesting, you can perhaps look it up a a little bit later, but the repetition of that keeping, the words associated with it in the whole passage. In verse 11, keep. In verse 12, kept. In verse 12, kept. In verse 12, none lost. In verse 15, uh, keep. And so he prays for them here, and he says in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But those whom you have given me, for they are are yours. Um, Don't think that when Jesus says, here I don't pray for the world, I pray for them. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love the world. Obviously, he loves the world. But the world is not his focus at this point in the prayer. His focus is his disciples here. And so he says, I'm praying I, I, I'm praying specifically uh, for them. And then in verse 10, Jesus said, And all mine are yours, yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified uh, in them. And that speaks of the fact that Jesus and the Father are glorified uh, by our faith in him. Again, we mention it every so often. The single greatest thing that we can do to bless the Father's heart is to put our faith in his Son— That he sent for our salvation and that blesses him and that glorifies uh, glorifies uh, uh, him and so again all of these things that he had described in verses six through eight their acceptance of his revelation of the father of his teaching their faith in uh, him for salvation their obedience to his word uh, all of these things uh, glorified both Jesus and uh, the father Jesus then went on in verse 11 and said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. And so here he in earnest now begins to pray uh, for their uh, keeping. And he asks here uh, and declares to the Father, I have kept them through the entirety of the three and a half years of my public ministry you gave them to me, I have kept them. All you have to do is look at those 12 disciples, uh, at least 11 of them, and uh, as you look at them and you realize the only explanation for them from getting from day one, three and a half years earlier, to being in that upper room with Jesus was the keeping power of Jesus in their life. And it's the truth related to, uh, to all of us. And, and so here he says, now I've kept them for the three and a half years, and he prayed here to the Father that he would continue uh, to keep them from uh, the position of his glory in heaven after Jesus' ascension, to be kept, uh, you notice, by his nature, by his name, and his, his character. We are not kept on the basis of who and what we are on the basis of our own character. We are kept on the basis of God's character and his faithfulness to his word to to keep us as Christians. Jesus then closes verse 11 here with the prayer that they may be one as we are, as the Father and Son are one. In verse 12, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Uh, Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And here he speaks about Judas. And so Jesus says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. And those whom you gave me, I have kept. And so this tells us that Judas was not kept because he was never given by the Father to the Son. Uh, and, 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 and he was not given because of the foreknowledge of God, recognizing uh, that God knew what Judas was all about, knew what Judas was going to do. And so Jesus, he brings up Judas here because it, Judas uh, creates a turmoil in some the hearts of some Christians where we read about God's ability and willingness to keep us from the moment of our salvation until uh, we're in the glory of heaven, and then people ask, well, what about Judas? He was one of the apostles, and here Jesus doesn't want any Christian uh, wondering about uh, that, that what happened to Judas can, can happen to us, uh, that we can be lost as he was. Jesus is revealing that Judas was in an entirely different category from everyone else. He was in a category of one among uh, the disciples. It's also important to understand that Judas was not compelled uh, to betray Christ in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies that declared a friend would do that uh, to to Jesus, but that he chose to betray the Savior, and in doing so, he fulfilled the Scripture himself. God's foreknowledge concerning the events in our life does not make him responsible for the decisions that uh, that we make. And so be at ease in our Christian life when we read about uh, Judas and then wonder about our own eternal security. Verse 13, but now, uh, Jesus continues, I have come to you, and these things I speak in the world that uh, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. And so Jesus prays this prayer in their hearing, Uh, in order that they might know that these are the things I am going to continue to pray for you throughout your life and throughout uh, your ministry. And uh, of course, knowing that Jesus is praying for us, knowing what he is praying for us in this regard is a a source of great joy uh, in our lives. And Jesus wanted us to experience that joy. I suppose there's no greater joy when we're in deep, always, but when we're a deep trial or deep difficulty, um, to realize that He is uh, praying for us and specifically praying for our keeping uh, in in the midst of of that trial, that He joins the prayers of, of everyone else and Uh, That is is praying uh, for us in verse 14. He says I have given them your word as he speaks to the father The world has hated me because uh, Hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not uh, of the world and so uh, We need God's keeping Jesus recognizes it in the light of the world's hostility towards us because of our identification uh, with Jesus and so you have a world that at one time uh, crucified absolute perfection in human history uh, in the per- person of Jesus himself and, and, um, uh, and, and is quite eager uh, to diminish our voices and to silence our voice if it's given a chance as well. And so he prays for us in all of our persecution. In verse 15 Jesus said, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, rats, uh, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And so uh, Jesus says that we're in need of God's keeping, not only in the light of the persecution of the world against us, but in the light of uh, the devil's opposition to us in terms of spiritual warfare and and these kind of of things that we need we need to be kept from his devices and his attacks and uh, against us and Jesus prays specifically related uh, to know that it's wonderful uh, spiritual warfare especially when it's at its most intense and thankfully it's not uh, always at its most intense but there are those blocks that really make life uh, hard, but they, they drive us deeper into the Lord. But how thankful we are that the Lord is praying for us in those, uh, in those pockets of time in our Christian life. Jesus doesn't pray that uh, we or they would be taken out of the world because of this kind of difficulty, but that we would be kept um, in uh, the midst of it. Then in verse 16, he begins to pray now uh, for uh, the disciples, for the followers. Uh, uh, he, he not only has he prayed here for their security, but now he, he prays for their sanctification. And uh, verse 17, uh, 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 verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is Uh, truth. So our lives are to be sanctified and Jesus prays for that. He prays that we would be kept, but then He prays that we would be sanctified or that we would be holy. Every definition of holy uh, needs to be run through the life and the ministry of Jesus Himself. He is the definition of holiness. So you have all kinds of ideas that human beings come up with, sometimes well-meaning but uh, misdirected and uh, all kinds of ideas about what real holiness looks like and then they take it all the way over into legalism that looks nothing like Christ or into a liberalism that looks nothing like Christ. If we want to know what holiness looks like in any situation, we can find in the Gospel somewhere where we see Jesus in a similar environment and then by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that thing and then that will be the holiest thing we can do in that, in that uh, situation. Jesus was holy in a way that made a difference it impacted people, it was noticed as being a holiness that was entirely different from the theological liberals of his day, the Sadducees, from the theological uh, legalists of his day, the Pharisees, they got a brand new definition uh, of holiness. And so all of these man-made ideas about how to impact the world, to impact uh, the lives of people uh, through a holy life, and uh, the, the most effective way is to, to look at it, at Jesus is our model and our definition related uh, to that. That's, that is being different in this world in a way that makes a true difference. And so Jesus here uh, calls and prays for uh, their sanctification. And that's what sanctification means there in in verse 17. You notice that Jesus speaks continually, as we'll see here through this section, uh, of the importance of God's Word in uh, living a sanctified life uh, as a Christian. He mentioned God's Word uh, throughout the prayer in verse 6. In verse 8, in verse 14, in verse 17, and in verse 19. And it is absolutely vital in order to uh, live a holy life in this, in this world. In order for us to be kept and to be sanctified it is vital that the Word of God has the influence that it's intended to have uh, upon our lives. I don't know one single person, since I started walking with the Lord in 1980, I don't know one single person who has made any lasting difference for God through their life or through their ministry uh, apart from a love for the Word of God. And a respect for the Word of God and and living the Word of God and the power of of the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's vital the Word of God in order to steer clear uh, of the sins and and the sins of lukewarmness and, and the sins that want to take us into bondage uh, as well. And so Jesus revealed here the place of the Word of God in the lives of these disciples. Verse 8 again, they had received His Word. And verse 7, they had believed His Word. And verse 6, uh, they had kept His word. So this is a beautiful glimpse into the three and a half years of Jesus's public ministry as he discipled uh, these uh, men and how word-centered that discipleship was. And if Jesus is discipling anybody's life, even by his Holy Spirit today, He is going to do it in large measure uh, through His his Word. And so as we read the Word of God, it has a sanctifying uh, effect upon our lives. The Bible is such a wonderful book. It's so alive. Uh, We can feel in our spirit a strengthening of our spirit as we read it, the spiritual food that it is to the inner man. We walk through this world. The world is a dirty place. It's a sinful place. Attitudes attach to us, temptations attach to us on a daily basis. We read the Word of God on a daily basis and it washes us. But it doesn't just wash these things that attach to us on a daily basis for the short term before we wash it away in the reading of the Word of God. It washes us on the inside as as well. It's able to do that, to impact the heart, so that not just our outward actions uh, are, are washed and sanctified, but all the way into our innermost being. It's washed, and it's cleansed, and it's uh, and it's uh, sanctified. And so, the importance of the Word of God in that uh, we certainly uh, take, uh, bathe regularly. Uh, I, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and in our culture, because of the blessings that we have, uh, happens on, most often, on a daily basis. And so, the same thing is true spiritually. Our need to be washed by something, uh, lest a, Uh, the stench of the flesh become uh, unbearable to others and to ourselves, and the Word of God uh, allows that to happen. There can never be any deep sanctification in a person's life apart from the Word of God, not only knowing it, but obeying it. Verse 18, Jesus said, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they uh, also may be sanctified uh, by the truth. And so Jesus tells us that why this sanctification is so important. It's because just as the Father sent Jesus into the world with work to do, Jesus sent the disciples into the world with uh, work to do. And so, uh, here is this great commission that Jesus has given the church to do, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, as Jesus uh, declared. Why did Jesus give give us something to do in the form of this great commission? Or uh, why does he include in our salvation Christian service as he does? Does he do it just to keep us busy? Wouldn't be a bad idea. Uh, Some of us need to be kept very, very busy to stay out out of trouble. But why does he call us to do Uh, those uh, things well he calls us to do it because this is what he's about and what he is like and any definition of sanctification that doesn't include Christian service is not a biblical sanctification because it is to ignore a core characteristic of Jesus himself who came not into the world to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, for uh, many. And so there's a lot of work to be done, and part of that sanctification in our lives occurs uh, for the sake of doing that work, and I think also as a result uh, of doing that work. God wants us right in the thick of what's going on in this crazy, dark world that we live in. Sometimes you'll hear Christians kind of talk about, wouldn't it be great if there was like a Christian country or like there was Christian island and everybody was there. I would fly to the other side of the world from that island. I love Christians. But if we've been called to reach a world for Christ, And then we go into a holy huddle, we are only going to to get into terrible trouble. Because all of the energy and all of the focus that should be spent on bringing the gospel to the world, we will then now use all of that energy and focus uh, to tear one another uh, apart. So here you see Jesus there's no monastery thing here no come alongside he says no I'm putting them out into the out into the middle of the world because that's what needs to be done but it's what they need And I think that the world of course the greatest need is the is the world need for Christians who have their heads screwed on straight and our hearts are right because we have the message to bring to them. But right below that is our need for a messy world to be engaged in to keep us out of trouble and to keep us well-directed and to keep us growing into Christlikeness in a way that we never would otherwise. So to often we can complain about the very thing that is vital to our spiritual growth and, and uh, maturity and uh, sanctification. And so uh, this thing of no, don't take them out of the world, uh, not, not yet. Uh, but keep them uh, in the midst of it. And then Jesus closes here uh, praying for all Christians, all of us through the ages from the period of the apostles on, and that uh, includes us. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles. And then right on through the apostles, do you realize? That whoever shared the gospel with you or whoever you prayed with uh, to invite Jesus into your heart, if you were able to do some kind of a DNA, spiritually speaking, on that, you would be able to track that through human beings through 2,000 years of history to one of those apostles. And so we are descendants of this long, beautiful uh, line of God's people. Not just in the apostles, but in 2,000 years uh, of, of church uh, history. And so uh, he prays for us here and, uh, and uh, 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 living in this age. And what he prays for us is uh, very, very interesting. That they... All may be one, Father, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us. And I think that's a key to unity. We're not going to be one with one another. or We will only to the degree that we are one in the Father and one in the Son, and under their mind and under their influence, that the world may believe that you are. Uh, sent me. And so he uh, his great prayer, and you think to yourself, okay, Jesus looks down through 2,000 years of church history to us uh, in this room, and you think, what would be his single great prayer for us? A new Mercedes Benz. No, when he looks all the way through 2,000 years of history, his great concern is for our unity. The unity of the body of Christ in the world. Now you tell me, and I'm preaching to myself tonight, you tell me if there is almost anything that Christians in the United States of America have less concern for than the unity of the body of Christ. Not only on an individual level, but in all of the things that we argue and we fight about and we divide over. All of the different denominations and the non-denominations. And if you want to know why, how we're different from all of those other denominations and non-denominations, I will tell you, it's fine to have Theological positions that make us distinctive as Christians, and not all Christians are going to agree on all of, uh, all of those uh, things. It's fine to be different uh, related to that, and then yet be humble in holding those convictions, not elevating those convictions above the unity of the body of Christ. So in terms of eschatology, the end times... There several different views related uh, to that. I can't help that everybody that doesn't believe what I believe is wrong. Or you take concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit, dispensationalizing, saying it's only for the early church and that we don't need that today. That's not the view that I have, but it's the view of a lot of people. And so I'm not going to divide over them, I'm not going to hate them related to that. I'll be happy to explain why it is that I believe what I believe, so that there can be a discussion. And then what can I do? Put them in a headlock and change their minds? I can't do that. And so the challenge is to be right and be humble in being right. Or to hold the positions that we have And to be humble about that and leave the big picture to other people, to to the Lord to work out in other people's lives. And so there's a tongue in cheek in which I say to be right and I'm speaking about myself. Well, why would I hold a view that I think is wrong? Of course I've come to this conclusion, and here is why. I will gladly listen to what you have to say here. But if it doesn't move me, it doesn't move me. But I'm not going to break fellowship with you over it. Or I'm not going to talk to unsaved people about not going over there because they don't. uh, This... And, and the things that are... I'm not saying that these things aren't important because I can look at people's uh, Christian lives or I can look at the quality of Christian life, uh, 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 life that comes out of certain theological traditions. It creates a certain kind of Christian. I look at it and I say, they are paying a price. For their theological position here related to that, I see that, and and maybe they do as they, they would even uh, of course look look at me, but still there's the freedom for them to do so, and and the importance of us having having fellowship with one another and remaining uh, united. I love what Harry Ironside he wrote of a missionary who was laboring in a in a foreign country at that time with very few Christians. And he said, any kind of Christian looks mighty good to me down here. And, and the point being, hopefully for us, I'm not, I am not judging anybody's heart. I'll just, I'm just going to talk to myself and you can listen in. hopefully, it will not take extreme persecution of us as Christians, as a persecuted minority in the United States of America, to get us to finally take this call to unity and prayer for unity that Jesus makes seriously. Now, However it happens, well, it happens, and that's good. But it's always nice when we make that decision before we've been forced to. When it's a choice that we can make in our, uh, out of our relationship uh, with the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's ascribed to uh, Augustine, but uh, nobody, there's a lot of... Arguments about where it comes from, but the famous saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, uh, charity. And so the importance uh, of this. And Jesus speaks of the importance of unity. And then he gives the reason why at the end of verse 21, that the world may believe that you, Father, sent uh, me. It's in order to know that this Jesus came from the Father to do what it is that, uh, that, that he did. And then second, uh, in verse 23, as he, as he says, "...in the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one." And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And so the importance of this unity in in making it a a supernatural uh, lights on for unsaved people to realize that this Christianity must be real. The only way that kind of human diversity can be held together in one body in terms of the differences that we have externally and internally is that Jesus is real, he really saves people and brings them into this body and into this unity. And the world is in such chaos. There's so much fighting going on. Never been more tribal or divided in my lifetime. At least not as many tribes as are fighting with one another. And Jesus knows the power of people looking at something and saying, all of these people are all in their tribes and fighting in this world. And yet they're getting along over there. Why is over there different? And then they come to realize the difference that Christ makes. And that it isn't just psychosomatic or mind over matter, but that God really is doing something supernatural through people's lives. And that unity really, really communicates it. And then in verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, that is us, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that is in heaven, and that they may behold my glory, uh, my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known uh, that Uh, you sent me. And so his prayer, Jesus is longing for us to join him in heaven. So I think it's wonderful to realize as much as we want to join him in heaven, he wants us to join him there. That's fabulous, really. And, And as he speaks here, All of these things in Jesus' prayer, all of these things, uh, all the way through verse uh, 19 here, he prays these things. All of these things are accomplished. He prayed for the Father to glorify him in his death, burial, and resurrection, to take him up into the glory of heaven. Everything that he prays here has come to pass. And what it tells us then is that us one day being in that glory with him, is as sure as his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension uh, into heaven. One day we are uh, absolutely going uh, to be there. And then he closes the prayer in verse 26, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Uh, them. And so the more that we learn about our Heavenly Father the more important uh, love becomes to us, the more important unity becomes to us and the more we're going to grow in love. And so Jesus declared that He will continue to make the Father and His nature known to us by the Holy Spirit. The evidence that we're growing in our understanding uh, of God the Father a true understanding of God the Father will be growth in our love for one another and in unity in the body of Christ. The Father will give us His love for the totality of His body. And that's one of the great marks of spiritual maturity is to possess His attitude toward uh, the body of Christ uh, as a whole. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Jesus, thank You for this glimpse that we have into Your heart, into Your mind, into Your priorities, into what is most important to You. It's an incredible revelation to us. And we thank You for it. And we pray as we look at these things that are so important to you and can be less important to us. And we pray that as we leave this place tonight, having looked at these things, especially in this vein of love towards other Christians and unity towards other Christians, that you would continue to develop that within our lives in this hyper-divided country that we live in, for the sake of the lost that are watching us, Lord and then for the sake of the health and of the body of Christ and the refuge that you want it to be to your people and to those who are yet to become your people. And we pray for this work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.